0: Hello, and this is the final episode of our special three-part series on the euro crisis. In the first episode, we talked about the global financial crisis and its effects on Europe and how the euro as a special currency had a very interesting effect when this euro crisis took off. In the second episode last week, we talked about the bailout of nations and how it's really a bailout of the banks in, say, Germany and France, among others. And also the politics of austerity, this idea that by forcing governments to cut, they would somehow be able to be fiscally conservative and they would save money and pay back their debt, despite the fact that the debt was caused by the failure by the private sector in terms of banks, and that by cutting, you weaken the economies of these nations and made their debt levels relatively worse because their economy was weaker and less capable of dealing with the debt. This week, we'll be talking about the political effects of the euro crisis and austerity, uh, both on the international stage and the national stage. And we'll be talking about the rise of nationalism and populism within Europe. Welcome to the Envoy Podcast for the 30th of August. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. So, today, we're going to talk about nationalism and populism and the change in the politics of Europe. But I want to start with something a little bit different and give kind of a background idea of why do we have states and property rights and why are these important for this particular discussion? Well, if you look back at thinkers like Hume, uh, John Locke, Adam Smith, you see in some of their works discussions on markets and what the role of the state is. At the most basic level, markets create inequality because people have different capabilities. Some people are just naturally better at some things than others. Someone is going to be a better plumber than others because they're just willing to work harder or they're just naturally talented. You We're know, have some people who are just better scientists because they're more naturally talented in that particular field than others. And so you get a hierarchy where some people end up on top, some people end up in the bottom by their natural talents. And then as people gain power, they can use that to further instantiate their gains. And so as a microcosm, You can look at the game Monopoly as a evidence of this. It's an iterative trading game where even if you have no natural skill and it's completely random, you'll find that somebody gets ahead and then that allows them to buy houses, which means it's even easier for them to get ahead and then they can invest in hotels. And soon enough, people are being knocked out of the game. They reach zero, they're knocked out of the game and you move on and you eventually end up with one person with all the money and no one with anyone else. And so markets have a natural effect of tending to concentrate wealth among those who either are naturally gifted or who have gotten ahead and then that compounds itself over time. And so these thinkers had to grapple with the problem of if you gain lots of material wealth and everyone else has almost nothing, what incentive do those people at the bottom have not to just come and take all your stuff? So if you're wealthy, you need protection for your property. At that point, you might say, well, we need a state because a state can protect my property, which is fine. But any state strong enough to protect your property could also potentially seize it. So you need the state, but you also don't trust it that much. And you can see this a little bit in the American founder's belief in guns to protect them from the government, as there's this distrust of the government and that it might try and violate your property rights in the future. But regardless of if you trust it or not, you do seem to need it, but you don't really wanna pay for it. But there's a solution, and that's government debt. Because if you can convince the government to come to you and say, I need $100, I'll pay you back $101 at the end of the year, you can loan them the money that they will use to protect you and you make a profit on top. So you need it, you can't trust it, and you don't want to pay for it. However, Smith and Hume discuss how if the government is going to be competitive in terms of offering loans, it has to offer something as good or better than the private market does. And so if you have this competitive rate, it crowds out private investment and eventually the economy slows down, there's no more ability to gain more debt, and then you eventually have to sell to foreign buyers, which then have these worries of foreign buyers owning the country eventually. And this is a central problem for a state. However, there's a way around it, and that's called taxation. The idea is that some people will do worse off in the economy. It is just a fact of life that we accept We believe that markets are the most efficient means of producing value and wealth, but through the course of those activities, some people are gonna lose out. However, if we wanna keep our society stable, we have to make sure not too many people ended up at zero. And if they've got nothing to lose, then they're more likely to be potentially violent or disruptive to society, and we don't want that. Beyond the fact that it's not nice to have people living in poverty, there's also increased risk of society destabilizing and the entire thing falling down. So we decide on taxation, and we make it a progressive taxation. So those who are most able, who are at the top, they pay more than those in the middle, who pay more than who are at the bottom, who pay almost nothing. This has two effects. One, in the benefit of those at the top end of the spectrum, they are now protected because they have... A state that is willing to protect them, they finance it through taxation, and their assets are protected. But also at the bottom, there is a transfer of wealth. And so that people at the bottom are given enough to survive, so they're not living in privation, they're not living in poverty. And so one, it's a axiomatic good that people aren't suffering. And also, they have something, and so they're less likely to feel that the system is rigged against them and that they need to destroy everything to make it fair once more and level the playing field. And so it's important when we think about the eurozone crisis and the private sector failure there that when the bailouts were made to national governments that then flowed back into the banks of Germany and France and whatnot, you're effectively bailing out the assets of the wealthiest in society. Because banks are made up of assets, those people who have invested or they've had a superannuation or whatever assets they've got associated with that bank the assets tend to be owned by the wealthiest in society. And so it's politically difficult to convince people that they should foot the bill to bail out the assets of the wealthiest. Instead, it's much easier to blame foreigners for being lazy and spending too much, such in Greece or Portugal, Ireland, and that affects the politics of Europe and disunity that has grown over time. But it extends beyond those with no assets. Even the middle class, Who often provide a significant amount of tax base will look upwards and look at those in the top 10%, the top 1%, and say, These people have been dodging taxes for years, and now they're being bailed out by the government when things went wrong for them. Why am I paying for that? And if you're in the bottom 50%, You look at everyone above you, even the middle class, you might just own their own home and a few extra assets like cars and whatnot and a superannuation and you say, well, I've got absolutely nothing. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I'm having to rent. I don't own anything. Why are my taxes paying for everyone above me? And so this creates fertile ground for nationalism and populism as different nations start blaming each other and the people and society start congregating in larger and larger groups of dissatisfied people who believe that the system has been rigged against them. And we've seen this reflected in voter discontentment in Europe. In Germany, we've seen the rise of the Alternative for Germany, which is a far-right-wing populist and nationalist movement at the expense of the Social Democratic Party, which is kind of the centre-left, similar to the Labour Party in Australia, usually polled quite solidly but lost quite a bit of ground post-Euro crisis. You've seen the growth of the national front in France, which came quite close to claiming the presidency, Even in the strong welfare state of Sweden, we saw the rise of the Swedish Democrats, a right-wing party that, until the Euro crisis, hadn't even been able to get into the Riksdag, which is the parliament of Sweden. In Hungary, Viktor Orban, a nationalist who is seen by many as basically a a mini-dictator within the European Union. And the Golden Dawn in Greece, which is a far-right nationalist and anti-immigration party with strong tones of Greek ethnic superiority. So that's the right-wing expression of nationalism and populism. But we've also seen it on the left-wing. In in the UK, we've seen the rise of Jeremy Corbyn for the Labour Party and the pushing out of New Labour, which was the party of Tony Blair, as people were upset with the policies that they have supported and are returning now to Jeremy Corbyn under a more populist perspective. In Spain, we've seen the rise of the Podemos coalition, which won 20% of the vote in a general election, despite not existing before the GFC. And now in Italy, we've seen the rise of the Five Star Movement, as we discussed in earlier episodes and detailed in our articles online, Despite being a fresh party, they've managed to gain a foothold in the government and effectively have come together with the centre-right to form government, despite no political ground before this, and even in Scotland with the Scottish National Party. And so there's both left-wing and right-wing versions of this nationalism and populism. And in many ways, it's an outlet of people who believe the system is unfair and are upset with the rising unemployment and the imposition of austerity. And so this has poisoned the well of European discourse as various countries have been blaming each other, and there's increased tension between countries, undermined further by the immigration crisis as certain countries don't want to take a certain intake of immigrants and blaming others for allowing immigrants into Europe, which adds more support for many right-wing organizations. And so you see this major upheaval of European politics that would have been unthinkable in the year 2000. Now, it hasn't been a complete swing to populism and nationalism. Chancellor Merkel in Germany has managed to hang on to power for now. Uh, The same with the rise of Macron in France, which was seen as perhaps a slightly safer bet than the National Front and Marie Le Pen with its more right-wing views. But it's clear that voter discontentment over the current state of the economy and immigration has led to this outcome. And a lot of it can be placed at the feet of the Euro crisis causing this major issue. And the fact that if the banks had been better behaved, there would have been less of an issue and less of a crisis to deal with. And we wouldn't have had this poisoning of the well of European politics. There probably would have been a degree of slowdown, maybe even recession within Europe, but we wouldn't have seen the politics of austerity coming out and the unleashing of nationalism and populism to the same degree. And so as these nationalist and populist governments rise up, it creates even more tension because you end up with people going to the European Parliament who are avowedly anti-European in terms of the EU and want to see the European Parliament dissolved. And the more nationalist politicians you have in each country, the more likely they're going to be engaging in a rhetoric that clashes with other nations nearby. You're going to have the self-reinforcing effect as they increase tensions more and more. And if you add that nationalist fervour, with a potential breakdown of NATO in Europe and the idea of America potentially in the future pulling out, it's even harder for the Europeans to stay in solidarity with each other because they have no outside force to try and keep them protected under the same banner. And they start to looking at other countries nearby as potential threats because the Americans won't be there to protect them and institute a higher authority that's gonna make sure that they play nice. Whether this nationalism and populism continues is yet to be seen. Eventually, European organizations came to the conclusion that austerity did not work, and that as you were cutting, you were making the problem worse. And if I remember, for Greece, I think it was a reduction of 30% of their GDP from the effects of austerity and the downturn of the economy as a result of the euro crisis and austerity politics. So, the Europeans have adjusted to some degree, and the ECB is acting like a real central bank. Uh, It had early on in the crisis stated that it didn't want to get involved effectively, and it wasn't willing to prop up the system, unlike in other countries like the US. But it has realized that it is the lender of last resort in the system, and it is making sure that the banks have enough liquidity to maintain the current system. However, there still is that moral hazard that we discussed in the original episode of the special series, the idea that because no one went to jail, there's less of a disincentive for people to continue on the same banking policies that resulted in the original crisis. And over time, if we see regulations become more relaxed, people forget, and we may end up in the future where there's a new euro crisis because the system becomes more unstable over time as people forget. And so if that happens again, it will give a new push for the populists and even more extreme politics within Europe and cause even worse problems. So it's really up to how stable Europe can be. And if it manage decent growth it can push down unemployment you may see a reduction in populism you may see the populist parties become more mainstream as they adjust they might become the new main parties but their policies might adjust to become more mainstream however if there's continued downturns if for instance during a trade war the economy suffers if germany can't export as much as it used to and it doesn't have enough young people to maintain a consumption-led economy, and it starts shrinking and increased taxes are needed to maintain the welfare system for the elderly and and those who get sick, it may be harder and harder to maintain stable politics, and you may see more and more forces fundamentally pulling these economies and pulling these nations towards more populist policies and rhetoric. So that's it for the third and final episode for this special series on the Euro crisis. Today, we talked about the political effects of austerity and the euro crisis on the domestic side of things, the rise of nationalism and populism, and in the international side of things, and how more fundamental forces coming into the fray, like the potential dissolution of NATO in the future, increased trade wars, the risk due to the moral hazard of bankers returning to the old policies, causing a further eruption of another crisis in the future, means that Europe is a very precarious place at the moment, and it could potentially get much, much worse. But even if it doesn't, you may still see the current nationalist and populist parties gaining a foothold, which they may hold for many years to come, and either maintaining their policies and becoming smaller parties or moderate parties that can hold the balance of power and shift politics to more nationalist and populist front. Or they may even become more mainstream over time as they adjust their policies to the new reality of a more stable Europe. I hope you've enjoyed this special series while I've been away in Japan. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw, and we'll be back next week with more. As always, you can find our website online at envoyfpa.org. You can find us on our Facebook and Instagram pages. And if you have any questions, comments, or requests, please send them to envoyuwa at gmail.com. I've been your host, Nathan Shaw. and We'll be back to our regularly scheduled broadcasts next week.